I'm Elena. And I'm Jack. And you're listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoilerful podcast where we read books by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. So, Jack, thank you for coming on today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here, not only because it's been a while since I've heard your voice, uh, but also because I really like this book and I'm excited to talk about it. I guess a bit about me, I'm about a year out of undergrad at this point. I did uh, English and I'm hopefully trying to go back to get my master's in library science at some point, but haven't really figured things out yet. So right now I'm just working. I live in New York City, which is also the setting of this book. And I'd also like to continue a precedent set previously on this podcast by Sophia, you know, being on Lenape land here in the city, quote unquote, uh, the Lenape Center is an organization trying to establish a presence for the tribe in the city because there really isn't one, which is pretty egregious considering they their you know claims spread pretty much all over the five boroughs. So yeah, so I would I just like to mention that, and I would like to thank Sophia for you know bringing that to my attention because for a great organization that does a lot of stuff and has a lot of cool events, they don't have a huge following or huge donation base. So. Yeah, and I'll definitely link that in the show notes and in the link tree as well. Sweet. Yeah, so uh, other than that, I just, uh, I really like walking around. I like, I'm an avid, a master of things, mostly books and music. And there's a lot of great used bookstores here too. So that's always a great opportunity. I've actually been on the lookout for a copy of The Narrows, which is uh, Ann Petrie's. Yeah, uh, I've been looking for that as well. Yeah, the reread uh, convinced me of the urgency of that yeah. <laughs> pursuit because I was like, yeah, I really, I have no excuse not to be reading that one too at this point. So who is Jack? Um, yes, uh, so we met, like I meet so many of my friends in the interwebs in a on a the Discord f- for the Empire Diaries, which is a Vampire Diaries recap podcast. And so we were just sharing with lots of other people about our love of vampire diaries and eventually they talked about books and I roped Jack into a book club that I'm part of and he recommended this book which I should mention at this point is The Street by Anne Petrie. Is it Petrie or Petrie? I don't actually know. Yeah. I kept saying Petrie in my mind because Petrie makes me think of Littlefoot, the dinosaur. Yeah, and also I have known people named Petrie, but they had an EY. So that's yeah. why I was that's why I went for the So listeners, let us know how should we pronounce yeah. this name? <laughs> we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll 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 see how we feel. But yeah, so I I was actually filling out a reading challenge and there was a prompt that says a book recommended by a friend that you wouldn't pick up on your own and so I kind of out of the blue messaged Jack be like recommend the book I will read it any book you name and I think it took you like 3.5 seconds to recommend yeah I I remember having that ready (laughs) because I feel like I had I hadn't read the book too long ago at that point and was still pretty excited about it so and so I'm so I'm so excited to talk about it so just a brief synopsis this novel so The Street by Anne Petrie was written in 1946, and it is set in a neighborhood um, in Harlem at the same period. So it was written and set like contemporary, in a contemporary setting. War, yeah. For yeah, it is a character study that follows Ludie Johnson, a young black woman trying to make a home and a living with her son. The eponymous street is personified by the different characters Ludie interacts with and the ways in which her American dream of rising out of poverty is being ripped at the seams despite her best efforts. So, I think right before we go in, I will give a few content warnings that because of the central themes of this book, we will be discussing racism and misogyny in detail. I also want to give a brief heads up for mentions of sexual assault and murder. I don't think we'll get graphic, but you know it's pretty important to the book, so we'll probably have to discuss that as well. So, well, we know that we both love this book. It is not a secret, but (laughs) what do you like about it? So I think an important thing to mention before I talk about why I personally love the book is like why I feel like it's an important one to talk about because it mysteriously is not talked about a lot, at least in a lot of the circles I run in and have seen from the outside. Um, And you studied English Lit, right? 
I did. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Goodreads, and Elena actually turned me on to Storygraph, which is an alternative that I much prefer now. But it is also like sort of a good gauge of like the you know wider pop appeal of certain titles, mm-hmm. and the street doesn't even have ten thousand ratings on Goodreads, which is pretty wild. And it seems it also seems like a book that would be good to make into a movie or TV series, but it has not uh, by this point. That might be. Oh my god! Having wish. a mini series would be amazing, right? Yeah, I I mean I can see uh, Anne Petrie not wanting that, so that might be a factor in it, but also. Like, it's, I don't know, it just seems like something that would have been made into at least one movie by now. And it's also not really read in schools. And I think that is, you know, sort of explainable by the fact that it's about race and racism, but there is really no good white character. There is no, like, white hero of the book. And I feel like a lot of the books that are read in schools have, like, some aspect of that. And so I feel like that's not that surprising, even though it feels like a book that would be great to read in like high school or something, just because of all the different perspectives it shows. And I mean, it like it is a wartime book without it probably mentions the war less than five times throughout the whole story. So it's like an interesting, you know, very domestic focus on that time period, Uh, even though and all this all this being said, it was the first book by a black woman writer to sell one million copies. So it is not in a, you know, it didn't just die out, fizzle out on release. It was popular. It's not obscure by any means right. in terms of, yeah. Yeah, she was very well known then. But I, I think it's interesting what you said about the mentions of the war, because I think it's very neatly tied in to the kind of economic situations that gives rise to like poverty and things. That's how they link it to the war, but not like it's not about the war at all. Right. And there's also the, uh, I think it's Boots overhears a conversation between two guys about how the, uh, you know, black regiments in the war, like overseas, aren't going to, aren't going to take all this shit when they get, are, are we allowed to swear? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. They're not, they're not going to take all this shit when they get back home. Like they're going to get here and they won't put up with all this stuff and things are going to change. And so there was also that element of like, you know, at what, what everyone in the United States thought about the war and the people who went off to war, because Boots was always also someone who, you know, vehemently opposed going for several reasons. Uh, one of the notable ones being that he did not want to fight for a country that, you know, treated him like shit. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, I, I sort of digress from why I personally like the book, which is, I mean, I'll probably, you know, outline that throughout this whole podcast but uh mostly i like that it is a quintessentially i don't know if quintessentially is even the right word but it is a very american novel in a way that does not play into any tropes of american novels and there there's like no you know alternate possibility offered to this american dream that's dashed against the rocks it's just pretty bleak and unapologetically critical and in addition to all that, it is beautifully written and beautifully charactered and it just like every little bit, every like vignette that she delves into, even the like random one with uh, Miss Renner, the teacher, is just so like well thought out and it just like is a book to really get lost in and it is just a joy to read even though it is not a joy to experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is one of those books where you're like, this is beautiful but also heartbreaking but also not in any way salacious or sensationalist Mm -hmm. about the kind of pain it depicts which is a very difficult balance to strike i find and i want to echo what you said about it being a very american book that does not play up the idea of like american nationalism in the traditional sense because I find this to be the most compelling American nightmare narrative I have read so mm-hmm. far in my life. I mean, I call American nightmare the kind of this American dream that is not really a dream or that is like fraying or is a kind of idol that people seek to worship but doesn't really do anything, doesn't have any power. And I feel like we've had so many of those 
We've had so like many a, the dark like a, side. Like a disillusionment narrative type thing. Exactly. The dark right. side of the American dream. But this is the first time where I felt that it was not gimmicky or it was not mm. like, look at how smart I am. Like, right. Yeah. It film, is definitely ma- not film major, so like smoking in a basement at 4 a.m. type thing. Yes. Um, definitely not the vibe. No, it was, it was poignant. I will say that, that it was a poignant narrative. And I think it's interesting that we don't teach this book because when I was reading it, I kept thinking, I wish someone would have hyped Anne Petrie as much as they've hyped Hemingway. Like, yep. I feel like... I, I her, remember reading that in your notes. <laughs> I feel like her prose is so limpid. It's so clear but it isn't as boring <laughs> as having <laughs> yeah i mean you don't need to co- you know you don't need to convince me of that uh but i just wanted to like say it to the world like out there on the airwaves people every time someone tells you to read hemingway just read this book instead yeah please like oh god just read this book instead it is so clear and i have a a quote here so that's just kind of exemplifying what I'm talking about. And this is capturing one of the main themes of the book is where Luti is ends up as a single mother and she's working really hard and she has a small apartment that she hates. And in a way, maybe we can discuss this later, I feel like there are a lot of gothic te- themes that mm-hmm. happen with this apartment and how she feels claustrophobic and it's small and i actually knew you would bring that up (laughs) you know me so well (laughs) but anyway so this is luti talking about the hatred the visceral hatred she has for this apartment even though it's complicated because it also represents the kind of freedom that she has from her cheating husband etc so the quote goes suppose she got used to it took it for granted became resigned to it and all the things it represented. The thought set her to murmuring aloud, I mustn't get used to it, not ever. I've got to keep on fighting to get away from here. And I just feel like that, even though you haven't read all the chapters preceding that, like you understand, like she's looking at her situation and it's like, it would be so easy for me to become complacent, to become resigned Mm -hmm to this kind of small life of survival and I cannot let that happen to me. And I find it's just so powerful. It's just so simple. (laughs) There's all, yeah. And there's also that, that also plays into the like running theme of Ludi being very much aware of the both systemic and individual like implications of racism and how it affects her. And I mean, she worked for that white family and, listen to what uh, all of the, you know, wives and husbands talked about. And so she had that angle on it and also just what she goes through in her everyday life. So she's not oblivious to any of that, but she also consistently identifies the cause or at least some of the cause of her situation as her own fault, so to speak. So mm-hmm. she like feels like it is very much her responsibility to like keep, I mean, it is, you know, she, she feels like it's her responsibility to work hard and move on and, and, you know, get something more for her and her son. But, it, and it is very much based in that idea of the American dream. And I rereading, I had actually forgotten how much that stuff is brought up in her, like, uh, internal monologues at the beginning of the book. Like she specifically invokes Ben Franklin mm-hmm. a few times, um, which we'll, you know, talk about later with the Junto connection. But all, uh, she also says, or she, she thought, I'm young and strong, there isn't anything I can't do. And I, that line really stuck with me, just as how, you know, an encapsulation of where she is at the beginning of the book, where, you know, she's down and out, but she really believes that she can do better, versus where she ends up at the end. Yeah, I think we should just mention quickly, for those who haven't read the book, that when we meet Luti, she has just left her husband, but... She's left her husband because he cheated on her, but the way she explains it is that he cheated on her because she had to take a job with a rich white family away from the home and she wasn't there. And because of the situation and the war, like her husband wasn't able to find work and she 
touches on the fact that this is something that was common within the black community in general. Like the women got domestic work, but the men were often out of work. And so there's a lot of thinking about what does it mean to tend to someone else's family while my own marriage goes to pot? This idea of like guilt that she's feeling. But I think it's also important to note because she witnesses, as you say, these conversations happening in this wealthy white family and kind of this idea of the new America and the idea of America as like a, a rich country. And so she's like, well, I see this and... I don't think of myself as inferior, therefore I can also achieve it. So it's this mm. idea of like, I know it's possible. I've kind of dipped my toe into this world where people are really rich. So it's kind of being on the margins of that that gives her the motivation to be like, I know it's not impossible. I just need to work hard, which we see will destroy her. <laughs> Throughout the book. Right, because because she also knows that it's not easy. She's well aware that mm-hmm. she is at a profound disadvantage. But the difference is that there is still that belief that there is some way up, um, which we can see for a lot of people. Unfortunately, including her, there isn't because that's the way the system was built. Yeah. So I was going to get into something when I was saying the stuff about Ben Franklin. Oh, yeah, with Junto. Do you want to? Talk oh yeah, because we were going to talk about because Junto Junto was the name of this like salon type club that he had with all his good old boys, um, where they would just you know come together and discuss, you know, all these ideas about freedom and the you know, American ideals, which is just you know the the white man perspective because all of them were white men. Oh, you're talking uh, about Ben Franklin. Yeah. Oh my god, I had no idea. Okay. Cause just to be clear, because one of like the main white character in the book is called Junto. Okay. So yes. Right, yeah. right, right. And and but this this thing that Ben Franklin had was also called Junto, which is like where that name comes from. And I feel like that's an interesting and important connection considering Ludi also mentions Ben Franklin by name. It's just like a you know, concrete representation of that like classic American ideal that you know, she is definitely not upholding in oh any way. Oh my god, that is, that is so interesting, because I feel in a way Junto is not there in a lot of the book, like we don't get that much of his perspective, but as the book unfolds, you realize that he has something to do with everything in Ludi's life, like he has completely infiltrated this neighborhood. And I think that's really in- interesting that he's not front of stage, but yet yeah, he, he is, controls everything. Yes, he's like, I feel like he's conspicuously one of the only characters who's mentioned semi-frequently who we do not see his point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I think, so is Miss Renner the only white POV we get? I think so. Yeah, but I think we get Junto, but a little bit, but just very briefly. Yeah, it's never, like, he never, like, gets his own chapter or anything yeah. like that. But, and Miss Renner, yeah, she has a brief chapter. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, that was one of the main things that I was focusing on in this reread actually was like Junto and everything that he sort of embodies in the narrative. And I like what you said about him not really being there because some of my favorite writing in the book is toward the end when uh, Bub has been, you know, taken away by the police because of the mail stealing and she's just alone in that apartment And she's like talking about just the emptiness and like the, you know, things lurking in corners. And she talks about how she like looks at the couch and Junto is there, even though he's not there. And she has to like convince herself that there was never anyone actually sitting there. And it's like he has wormed his way into so many different aspects of life that he is just like ubiquitous in even the most mundane of moments. Because you also mentioned your in your notes how like the possibility of sex work is like ever present for Ludi and how I don't know how many times it actually happens but like I feel like every time she walks out of the building Mrs. Hedges is like remember there's that white man dearie if you ever need to make some extra money or whatever and it's just this like constant opportunity that's like you know pushed at her from all these different directions and I I was really interesting because I read like the introduction by Terry Jones and I read, you know, the back of the book 
And then you kind of see Lutie as a character, okay, single mom moving into an apartment building where the superintendent is definitely a creep. And then there's a madam who runs her brothel out of her apartment. So you get this sense that when you read the back of the book, oh, it's a young woman who like faces the vices of the city and like succumbs despite her attempts at virtue. And that's why it also sounded very gothic to me in that sense of like mm-hmm. pure, innocent young woman corrupted by sex. And I expected that to be part of the story going in because of the whole kind of paratext going into it. And this idea of like, what is the worst thing that could happen to a young, pure mother would be like to go into sex work. And so I thought it was really interesting that A, that never happens. She never, she never does do that. But it is so, it is a, an economy of the text. So mm-hmm. even Mrs. Hedges, the madam, basically is kind of one of the characters that is the kindest to her in a way and really shows you like, you know, it, it wouldn't have to be so bad. Like it's this idea that, oh, you think this type of person would be like really horrible, but she actually treats Ludi really well. And then you have language of making Luti property and then you realize that Mrs. Hedges is saving quote-unquote Luti for Junto who like operates her brothel or and or has connections to the police to make sure it's not shut down yep. so even all of these avenues of quote-unquote kind of empowerment or a way for women to make more money is like owned by this white man who has decided that Luti's quote-unquote virtue is only safe because he's reserved her for himself. Exactly. So gross. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of interesting, like, contradictions with Mrs. Hedges. Because, like, I, I, I really like the chapter from her point of view where she talks about how, from her perspective, her, like, her, her role to these girls that she takes in is very motherly. I don't think she ever, like, explicitly mm-hmm. acknowledges that, but the way that it's described from her perspective is she is offering them a lesser evil, so to speak. But she's like, you know, bring them in, giving them warm beds. And she doesn't think that this is in any way something like what women are supposed to do. She just thinks that in a lot of ways, it's like making the best of your lot. And she recognizes, I feel like that's her unique perspective as someone who fully conceptualizes herself as a (laughs) non-sexual being. Uh, and she, like, does not think, especially, so she's a very large, like, very, and she always, like, is conscious about how her form is imposing on people. And then she was also in a fire in that apartment, um, and the top of her head was burned pretty badly. So she always wears a bandana to cover it. And so that's, like, part of her, like, ongoing thought process is, you know, how people perceive her and or lack thereof. Like, they don't see her as this sexual object in any way. And so she sort of like becomes this facilitator for that sort of ongoing, like she sees this as something that will always happen. So, you know, you might as well make the best of it. And so it's like an interesting coexistence of like virtue and complicity and yeah, just a a very interesting character. Definitely Mrs. Hedges is super interesting because as you say, like she does not see herself as a sexual object, even though it was hinted like that Junto might have been interested, like because they've become kind of business partners, but she can't see it or she doesn't want it. Like she really dissociates from that part of herself. But this means that she kind of like is like a businesswoman, like made like this makes these business decisions. And if we compare that to Luti, who's just kind of trying to get by, and then compare that to Min, who is the woman who's living with Jones, the superintendent, who is kind of happy in a kind of in a semi-abusive relationship with Jones because she finds that living with a man is what allows her to like not starve or something so it's just, like right. these three women that make three different decisions then like Lutie's like left her husband chooses to work to like live with her son mrs hedges is like i cannot rely on a man so i will pimp out these women and then men who is just like i will put up with a horrible man 
because I know the alternative is worse. Yes, and she like and she like ba- basically does everything she can to make that situation tolerable without actually getting out of the situation, which she does eventually do. So that does is something that happens. But what I what I want to say is interesting about Junto's I don't even know if it's an attraction, but to me it reads more like a fascination with Mrs. Hedges. Mm-hmm. Like and I feel like a lot of that is because she views herself as such a non-sexual person. Like he yeah. is like to him it's like the opposite of Ludi to where Ludi is this like sort of like, you know, gorgeous object of desire like end goal type thing whereas mrs hedges is this you know he he sees himself in her basically like mm-hmm. she is like someone who operates the way that he sort of understands she's not he's she's not this like exotic object that's out of reach um and so i feel like it like they're very different like his you know infatuations with mrs hedges and Ludi, and neither of them really read like genuine attraction or lust almost and it's no they're all they're still objects yeah but but i think he even says about mrs hedges that she's kind of like a man and he relates Mm -hmm. to her like he would to a man Mm -hmm. so i think that's it is this idea of mrs hedges knows who she is and then (laughs) isn't trying to prove herself to anyone Boots, boots also has that line where he talks about Junto's the only white man he's ever met who like shows no indication that he is aware that Boots is black. Yeah. Um, and it's like, there's that like sort of mutual understanding of like, there's no difference between us, mm-hmm. which is we yeah. know now is not something to really strive for as a response to racism, but it's like one of these things that these people like, you know, it is much uh, preferable to, you know, actively active yeah. prejudice and, oppression you know and i think that's what makes junto even more interesting because you know you said in the beginning like there is no good white character and i would argue there is no like purely good character at all oh yeah for sure but junto is interesting because he is you know portrayed as one of the only white men in the neighborhood who kind of has uh an integrate he runs an integrated bar he clearly does business with boots who we should mention is like a jazz player or a musician of some kind and he runs like nightclubs and dance halls and he has this agreement he seems to be on very good terms with mrs hedges and like helps her out with the police so she can run her business and so on the surface you could be like oh he's a chill white dude where he's just like he doesn't treat black people like they're not human. Like he's happy to go into business with them. In that sense, he would pass a lot of like good white guy standards. But as you read the book and you see that he owns the building where Luti works, he, you know, keeps tabs on Mrs. Hedges. And, you know, it's this idea of I offer you protection, but then you have to like give me some girls, which is also really creepy. And he also thinks that because Boots works with him, he can tell Boots, like, who he should date, who he should not date. He feels like he's his boss in many ways. And so as you read the book, you realize, oh, okay, yeah, sure. He doesn't spit at black people when they come into his bar, but, like, that's a very low bar. Yeah. No pun intended. Back, I mean, yeah, back then, <laughs> back then it was, you know, which is the yeah. messed up thing. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. But it also is like, I feel like it's important to note that like, where those, like, you know, mutual acknowledgements are violated, like when, you know, Boots is totally is like fine with being with working for Junto. Uh, because he, you know, gets a lot. He lives in that nice high rise apartment. Uh, makes I think at one point he says he makes like more money than he'd ever really know what to do to do with but there is like that that moment when Junto crosses the line so to speak when he asks Boots he says like don't pay Ludi and also don't go after her because I want her basically Mm -hmm. and it's like he's like exerting this like power difference that 
Boots yeah. could ignore while it wasn't negatively impacting him. But once like it was asserted, you know, he obviously his thoughts about it greatly changed. And I think that shows up in a lot of different things with Junto and he uh, in some aspects just embodies white supremacy in general. Just that like insidious, oftentimes invisible force that just crops up everywhere. And but like if you dig deep enough, you will eventually see it. Yeah, I think this book again, should be recommended to everyone as an example of how you can talk about systemic issues in a novel specifically, Mm -hmm. as opposed to other forms of writing. Because you see with how Junta runs his business, with what I mentioned earlier about Luti commenting on, you know, black men who didn't go to war have a hard time finding jobs and that puts strains on family and things like that. There's a lot of ways in which white supremacy is shown to you through economic means, through barriers to employment, to through barriers to having rights at your job, etc. That is, as I said, shown and not told. So you really live the lives with these people, with all of these characters, and it's pretty clear that you can say the big bad is white supremacy. Like, all in all, like, that is what is keeping Ludi down. But it is not, it is never, in my opinion, hammered on your head. It is never mm-hmm. on the nose. This is never, like, all of these things. And I think it's interesting to think of it as written in the 1940s, which obviously did not have the kind of activist vocabulary we've developed today because it was just different language. And I think it reads so fresh in a way that this is how you talk about systemic issues in novel form. (laughs) But I also think it's important that like, there is a lot of really the ideal kind of showing, not telling, but there's also no like ignoring of these wider systemic things in the actual like inner monologues of the characters. Like, as I was talking about with Ludi, like they are very much aware of, you know, things beyond their everyday experiences. But it's like, it's like this great balance between the two. Like they acknowledge these things and are fully aware of them, but are in a lot of cases fully capable of applying that to their actual situations. And like, you see how they see certain things as one thing and certain things as another thing. And it doesn't, it often does not align with, the things they say in their head, which I'm sure a lot of us can relate to. Absolutely. And I think one of my favorite chapters is one that is in Min's head. So the woman mm-hmm. who's living yes, with Jones. Well. Yeah. And because like she sees Luti as a threat because Jones is lusting after her and he's being really gross. So she sees like, oh, here comes this young woman who I believe is also more light skinned. Yes. And she feels like oh i have this comfortable position with jones and he he's starting to like get really irritated with me and he wants to replace me and so you go through the whole monologue of being like you know she doesn't really have anything against luti personally but she's just like mm-hmm. i can't go back to living on my own i was starving i cannot do this so you see her complete inner monologue about like what is she going to do about that and she decides to go to like I guess if we use the language of Vampire Diaries, he's a witch. (laughs) A witch doctor. A witch doctor. A witch doctor. Yeah, witch doctor. Yeah, so she goes to the witch doctor and she asks him to curse Ludi to make sure that Jones never leaves men for Ludi. And it was one of the chapters that I find was very difficult to read because it was kind of explicitly, you know, woman on woman misogyny. <laughs> like you're going to like a lot of lengths to like curse this woman who's done nothing to you. But I I thought it was fascinating to be in Min's head and to see like she was just very pragmatic about this. She was just like, I I know what it like how much work it takes for me to live. I cannot live on my own. I have to stay in this situation. And the problem is this young woman who came in. And if I get rid of her and she thinks about like, well, she has a son, you know, maybe that's not fair. And she thinks about that. And she's like, 
yeah, but still, I can't, I can't do it. So it was just, so, it was so dark, but so well done. This kind of tension that happens, being like, yeah, sorry, I'm gonna run over you with a truck because I can't go on anymore. Yeah, it's just like an unfortunate, you know, necessity type thing. Like that's that's a consistent theme that shows up too. Like uh, women blaming women for men doing shitty stuff i mean like mm-hmm. movie even does it to some extent when she comes home to find jim with the other woman like most of her anger is directed at the woman rather than jim because yeah. as you said earlier she sort of blames herself because she was away and you know sort of like not in her rightful place as like keeping him from going astray i guess uh because there's also that line her wifely duties right i i can't remember if it's Mrs. Hedges or someone else that says it, but at one point near the beginning of the book, there's a quote that's, it's not good for the woman to work when she's young, not good for the Mm. man. Like, and I feel like that's what they're specifically referring to. Like, if you don't, if you don't like pay attention to your man, then he's going to, you know, cheat around on you basically. And I think it's interesting that in the case with men, when she goes to see the prophet, uh, he gives her, remedies for jones himself so like she he gives her like the cross and then the powder or whatever and so like these are like basically telling her that jones is actually the problem and not ludi but she doesn't really see it that way she's just like you know it, it feels comforted by this you know material solution that she's given because she doesn't see it's not like she's like jones is this great person who can never do anything wrong and it's ludi leading him astray like she recognizes that He's very flawed and, you know, not a, like a, not a good person, but she also just sees it like, as I mentioned before, this like submission to inevitability or this is just the way things are. Like, this is how men are going to behave and how they're all, they'll always behave. And it's like they, they just accept that as the baseline and, you know, work out solutions beyond that i think she mentions at some point like oh yeah sure he beats her but like a lot less than like right another guy right it's like it's like an so ideal <laughs> an ideal situation a lesser evil i like this chapter also because it addresses the when people turn to superstition and things mm-hmm. to try and control systemic problems so in this case like racism that's affecting men's uh, ability to earn wages and the patriarchy that's affecting her ability to earn wages and like live an independent life and i think that it just makes the book better to address this because a lot of people turn to concrete steps concrete rituals things to be like how do i fix my situation because men can't erase all young beautiful women from the earth she can't make it so that jones like will not kick her out at some point but she can say well i've tried to stop this specific woman i've tried to stop this specific situation i can use that and i also think that you know there isn't isn't really any judgment from the narrator's perspective as to whether these remedies work Mm -hmm. Because in a way they do work. For example, having the cross like yeah. scares the bejesus <laughs> out he, he, of Jones. He will not like... go in the room at all. And when he's like physically attacking her, she holds it and that like repels him, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like in a way, like she did make herself more safe. It sounds like he wasn't sexually assaulting her and <laughs> beating her as much because he was afraid of this cross. So whether or not, like, the objects and the powders actually had power, they did have symbolic power. Yeah. And I I don't know if it's, like, so there's no, we never get the, like, any sort of perspective of the, like, witch doctor character, but we do for the lawyer that Ludie goes to see when she, Mm. like, is, like, needing to go to Bub's hearing. And, like, we get, like, a brief paragraph or something where he's basically, like, doesn't she know she doesn't need a lawyer for this? And then he decides yeah. to charge her for her services anyway, which is, as we know, the catalyst for everything that happens at the end of the book, because she's trying to get the money for that, that she doesn't even need. Um, yeah. But uh, like, yeah, as we were talking about how people go to seek out material solutions and concrete solutions and things that like very clearly work or do not work. And just how Min was observing these women that were 
at the appointments ahead of her and how nervous and apprehensive and like down and out they looked waiting and then when they walked out they were just so much more relieved and like assured and just they had at least now they had something to try whether it would work or not and they would just yeah. keep trying different things and that just shows that there are also a lot of people who can maintain the very system that those people are trying to subvert by taking advantage of them and their seeking out of those type of solutions which is absolutely because they also feel heard right Right. like this is my problem and you're like okay here's his powder i think we should talk about bub a little bit we've mentioned him Mm -hmm. and i think the theme of motherhood is also very interesting in this book and i think it's not portrayed in a traditional way so obviously like luti loves her son and wants the best for him but you also have her in her internal monologue kind of not loving motherhood or kind of feeling that, you know, she could have been doing other things if she weren't a mother, which I found to be interesting. But also it shows how the stress about money affects children. And I kind of relate mm-hmm. to that a lot. I remember growing up, my parents would kind of be very open when they were struggling with money and yeah, how that shaped my relationship to finance in general and we see bub seeing his mother like always say we don't have enough money we need more money we don't have enough money we have to get out of this crap apartment and so he starts doing like tasks to get money um, and some of them are illegal and uh, eventually get him into trouble but it's this idea of like well i see my mom having issues so i'll go do this and then she'll get mad because I'm playing in like at some point he tries to like become a shoe shine. Yeah. And his mother comes home. It was just thinking about like, oh, black men never aspire to get out of this. And like now her son is like reproducing this black stereotype and she gets so angry at him and he just doesn't understand. She she's him. like, well, yeah, she slaps him. She's just like, oh, never do this again. And he's like, well, you always say we need money. And like, I'm 10. Like, I don't have any other way to make money. Yeah. Which is how he falls prey to Jones. But, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. I mean, there was even that moment where he's home and she's in the kitchen and I can't remember exactly what happens. I think like maybe the coffee machine breaks or something and she just like loses it. She's just like, damn, being poor. Damn it, damn it, damn it. Mm-hmm. And like, that's like a whole different level to her just like constantly like telling him not to leave the lights on or, you know, yeah. being careful with his shoes so that they don't have to get his shoes fixed. And there's also this like, like when you mentioned with him being a shoe shiner, there's like this interesting idea or multiple ideas, I guess, about like jobs that are respectable and like yeah. who who is who has the dignity to refuse jobs versus who has the who had who doesn't have the dignity to. And in so, a lot of ways, it's like, you know, she is talking about how black men don't, you know, take jobs because they are feel emasculated or power exerted over them in these like very you know, service-based positions, but then when someone actually does do this, it's, like, an immediate reaction. Like, she, like, the second that she realizes Bub is shining shoes, she, like, reacts physically, you know, and it's, like, mm-hmm. he doesn't even understand what's happening, because, like, in his in his mind, he's literally just doing a job to make money. He doesn't have these, like, conceptions of what certain type of jobs imply, and, like, all of these different, like, complex, you know, social views on all of that stuff and so he just like pretty much every character in this book is tragic but bub especially is just so sad to read about how everything goes down yeah because he just wants to make his mother happy yeah. and he doesn't under- he's not privy to her inner monologue and we are yeah it's so sad and i think in a way this is also how Lucy's american dream is like destroying her family in the sense that she says like oh we need more money but she also has as you say these very entrenched views of like what are the right kinds of ways to make money and if we can go back to the sex work thing like Luti is consistently like no I would never do that I would never do that like she's very judgmental about it but I feel like the book isn't Mm -mm. if that makes sense yeah the book definitely does not like express any sort of disapproval or approval toward it yeah and so I I think the way that Lutius portrayed as a mother and as like 
ostensibly like I do everything for my son to get him to a better place, but you right. see it pretty clearly that no, you're doing it for yourself and your idea of like what success looks like. Uh, not that yeah. she doesn't care about her son, but I think it was it is it's not a story about a mother if that makes sense. Like her motherhood is not yes. front and oh, center. Oh my gosh. Yes. And like I mean there there's even that ongoing trope that I see critiqued a lot where black women are like it's an either or type thing where they either like completely fail as a motherly figure or they're like this perfect object of virtue and like are like everything a mother is supposed to be and here's Ludie, you know right in the middle because she's a real person who just happens to have a kid Mm -hmm. and like she has to live her life while also having this other life dependent on her that she has to worry about so i mean that's just one of the many things in this book that just feels so real because even though you know Ludie says and thinks a lot of stuff that a lot of us wouldn't agree with and just we were talking about how you know, she is very much an imperfect protagonist. Like, you still fully empathize with her. Like, I mean, I just, I, I absolutely, like, I was so just invested in how things turned out for her. And, like, it's just absolutely. like you feel that growing sense of despair along with her. And I feel like that's the reason so many things in this book work so well is because everything feels so real, even for people who have not experienced anything like this it's a thriller in a way that is you know it's not a thriller (laughs) but you have this creeping sense of dread that keeps snowballing and you end up with luti as you said jack like desperate to get this money for a lawyer for bub that she doesn't even need she tries to borrow money from boots and she goes to his apartment and this is when he decides in his internal monologue, screw Junto, I will have sex with her if I want to. And then he tries to rape her and it's horrible. And she kills him. Yep. And at that moment, she just decides, I'm just going to leave. And so she leaves Bub in prison and she just goes away. She's just like, he'll realize I'm not coming back. Yeah. Him. And hopefully he survives that. And like the book feels like a thriller in large part because it has this like, fast moving pace to it like it doesn't it doesn't feel like like the time is whipping by but it like very much feels like it is working toward a Mm -hmm. conclusion and is not you know dawdling about getting there but it also ends so abruptly which i feel like plays into that even more because you you get the sense that this is a very like in the moment and impulsive decision ludie's making to leave her son behind because i mean she's probably full of more adrenaline than she has been in her entire Mm -hmm. life she's in shock She's traumatized and she immediately makes this decision. And like, you get the sense that she is going to feel differently, you know, even a day later, but we don't see that because it just ends. And like, um, there are, there there are no words. (laughs) Like it's just so. I know there's no epilogue. There's no like, Oh, it turned out well in the end. You just like see this person giving up like in real time, as you say, because of the pace, it feels like it's in real time. And you totally get the sense that something bad is going to happen. But then when it does, it doesn't feel like, you know, the culmination Mm -hmm. of anything. It just sort of happens. And you're like, Oh, wow. Yeah. This just is just a tragic story. And there's no like poetic, you know, silver lining to it or anything. It's just like everything that could have gone wrong, gone went wrong. <laughs> and like Luti taking like agency turns out to be like the darkest form of agency, which is murder. Like her being in the room while Junto's outside and uh. just like, just being so angry. Like she, and she doesn't even know like what to do with all that anger. Cause she's never like felt it in her life. But like, everything comes crashing down at once. Like all the, she knew she was taking, being taken advantage of, but she didn't know to what extent. And it all, you know, everything that we've seen snowballing the whole time comes yeah. to her all at once. And yeah, I mean, she's obviously defending herself, but there's also just so much of everything else uh, behind those blows. All right. Before we close out, I will read the last paragraph of the book because it is just so beautiful. So this is right after Luti killed someone and is on the run and decides, like, makes the conscious decision to abandon her son. The snow fell softly on the street. It muffled sound. It sent people scurrying homeward so that the street was soon deserted, empty, quiet. 
and it could have been any street in the city, for the snow laid a delicate film over the sidewalk, over the brick of the tired old building, gently obscuring the grime and the garbage and the ugliness. Wow, well done. <laughs> I was just like, oh my, it's so good. I wish, I wish Anne Petri was alive so I could interview her. It would be so good. Well, the edition I read of this book is a 2020 reprint. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's so, I feel like that's good news then. There's like, you know, some momentum going. Yeah. I actually did. That That reminds me. I looked up some, you know, like publications about it. And from, you know, publication date in 1946 to now, there are probably like 400 something results. But like more than half, like a good amount more than half were from just 2000 on. And like a good portion of that, which yeah. was from like 2016 on. So I feel like there is like with, Great. you know, current events, obviously a lot of new interest being taken in the book, both scholarly and mm-hmm. I hope uh, popularly, but we'll see. And yeah, I do want to mention this is a very approachable Absolutely. book in terms of prose to read. It is not at all obtuse. It is. Yeah. So you don't need to to know anything basically about the US, about US during World War II, about Harlem. You don't need any prior knowledge. You can just go into this and enjoy and I mean enjoy in right. the heart-wrenching sense of the word. Um every character. And yet you will learn so much. Like it's so lived in and like uh Petri wasn't even from Harlem. I think she was born in Connecticut to like um like a pretty well off, relatively at least, family. And so this was like sort of an outside perspective and it's like a testament to how observant she is that it feels so like it, it, it feels like that it, it really happened, you know, like these are just like so many like indelible details that couldn't that feel like they couldn't be made up. But yeah, it's so clearly set in a place in a time and yet it feels so mm-hmm. contemporary because we're still facing a lot of the same issues now. Like it's, yeah, ah, beautiful. Yeah, so much more to say, but that was a great discussion that we had. I think. Yeah, we could we could just talk about we could just like talk about every chapter in detail for like hours. Yeah, I mean, you could have you could teach like a class for a whole quarter on this book. Like it is so readable, so teachable, so discussable. Like there's just so much going on, but like we've said over and over again, it is like very accessible. Like it's not difficult to read at all, at least not the text itself, you know, and it's not, and it's not graphic either. Like, no. you know, disturbing things happen, but they're never described in any detail that could be latched onto as obscene or offensive, you know, like, yeah, that's what, when I said in the beginning, like, it's not salacious. It's not like, look at the pain and how gory it is. You're just like, no, let's, tell you about real people and every single person feels real yep even if they get one chapter even if it's the awful racist white teacher <laughs> Miss Renner. yeah man that one's hard to read too oh, we didn't we didn't talk about her that much but yeah it's that chapter is just like a blow in the gut <laughs> so do you have any reader like recommendations that you would like to recommend Oh, yeah, I was thinking these are so the two books I came up with are a lot more recent, mm-hmm. but I definitely see a lot of the same you know, energy and themes, even if they are like pretty different in terms of the books that they are. Um, first one is The Salt Eaters by Tony Cade Bambara, uh, like similar, like working class black perspective. Um, and it's a bit more I think it's set in the South. So it's more of that like perspective on things um and then also the lynchers by john edgar weidman uh which is more about the like male black perspective Mm. and like how masculinity plays into all of this all of these issues and things like that so those would be my two and those both came out in the 80s so these are more like contemporary perspectives at least you know compared to this novel yeah i mean i hate to recommend a dead white man but when i read this it made me think of emile zola so much the french 19th century writer who does realism and he really wrote about the working class in france at that time and also 
the effects of industrialization that was happening and of capitalism. And yeah, he, he writes these very unfiltered, unpolished characters that sometimes are objectively horrible, but are also so real because he always positions them within the scope of like systemic things that are happening around them. And I recommend his first novel, Thérèse Raquin, which is about a woman who conspires with her lover to kill her husband. And I mean, I'd be curious to read it now because it's probably pretty misogynistic in a lot of ways. But I I remember reading this as a teenager and just being really enthralled by this portrayal of desperation, of doing things because you feel like this is the only way to do it because you're so poor, because you have no options. So, I mean, I do recommend that that kind of like realism style, but for a more contemporary read-along, I recommend An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. So the edition I read was prefaced of of the street that I read was prefaced by Tayari Jones, who mentions teaching this book in her university classes and an American marriage was published in a 2010s at some point and is about basically these two black couple um, and they're on their honeymoon basically, or they've just been married one year and they're staying at a motel and a white woman gets raped and accuses the husband of raping her, even though he did not. And so he goes to prison. So it's following this couple facing, um, you know, what it's like to be incarcerated, what it's like to be married to someone who was incarcerated, who has been falsely accused because of white supremacy in the end. And it is very much a character study that I feel echoes a lot of what Petri is doing in this book. So I really recommend that. Nice. Yeah, that one I added to my list because you have it on the document. Yeah, I want to read more about Tayari Jones. Like she wrote about a book, Leaving Atlanta, about like young black girls uh, kidnapped in Atlanta in the 1990s or 80s. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely want to read more by her because I really enjoyed An American Marriage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can find that introduction too. Yeah. All right. So, Jack, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah. Um. I'm on Instagram as Good Evening Jack. I don't like put too much important stuff on there, but if you want to see like the random things I put up on my stories, you can follow that. I guess. I also write a music review site called Noise Not Music. The handle for that is just noise.music.com, and the Instagram is noise.music with an underscore at the end. Um, and I also have my own podcast. It's a uh, Vampire Diaries fan rewatch-ish thing. We're unfortunately on I- indefinite hiatus right now, but we have five episodes out. So if there's any of the same crossover interests that Elena and I have for that. And they're wild, about two hours long, right? So there's a lot of content. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're for people who really want to really have been really feeling a lack of, of nerding out on that kind of stuff so it's a very specific but uh hopefully somewhat universal uh appeal yes and hopefully i will appear at some point to discuss all things gothic yes as, as soon as we get started elena is on the docket um oh yeah and that's it's called uh tvd jk pod uh on on instagram is tvd jk underscore pod you can follow me personally at Elena G. Mamrell on Twitter and my website, lenagotiemamrell.com. You can also listen to me discuss philosophy and Gilmore Girls, respectively, on my two other podcasts, Philosophy Casting Call and Women of Questionable Morals. You can follow this podcast at Bookshelf Remix everywhere and support us at ko-fi.com forward slash brpod. Yes. The transcripts to every episode are linked in our link tree and in the show notes. So until next time, text a friend who is a mother about the show. Text a friend with multiple jobs about the show. And don't forget to give your bookshelf a good remix. Yay! Yay!